Are you ready? Let me say it first. You repeat it after me. John. My name is Tim Lemire, and I love the Beatles. I also love language. I'm a writer, editor, and author, so language is my livelihood. Why not make a podcast where I use the Beatles' music to talk about the English language? This is The Beatles' English. Episode 10. Around and About Penny Lane, Part 2. Welcome to the second half of our exploration of the English language as it pertains to the Beatles song Penny Lane. If you haven't listened to Part 1 of this podcast episode, I encourage you to do so. There is much to discuss about this gem of a song from Sir Paul. So let's get right back into it. Have you ever listened to a Beatles song by Lennon and McCartney and asked yourself, How did they do it? How did they write such great songs? Paul, how do you and John do it? We just got a very informal approach. We've got no formula at all, you know, for writing songs. We just do it as it happens. Sometimes John can write a line of a song. He can come up and say... Things like that. He could say that. He could just say that. He could just say that to me and I could say, No, John! And uh, often I disagree with Paul and say, which has been done so many times, it killed it. But then sometimes, you know, we have a real row and I say, <laughs> listen here, John, I don't think that's right. But uh, it depends, you know, sometimes there's a line that he does and then I do a line, or sometimes John can write a whole song. Can I? Yes, oh, he's a, he's a wonder when he gets going. Sometimes I can even do that. I love that clip, <laughs> and I use it because in this discussion of Paul's song Penny Lane, I want to refer to a song that John wrote, whose original lyrics mentioned the place Penny Lane two years before Paul's Penny Lane was released. But first, do you know what the word nostalgia means? That is, what its root word or etymology is. The word nostalgia is from the Greek meaning homesickness, that feeling of longing for one's home during a period of absence from it. We often think of that longing as being sad, but it can also be romantic and call to mind happy memories of home. The interesting thing about homesickness is that you can long for a home that you never knew I remember loving the Beatles when I was very young, growing up in the 1970s. And when I was about 12 or 13, reading every book about the Beatles that I could get my hands on, I went around my house saying, I wish, I wish I could have lived through the entirety of the 1960s. What a great decade and time. And my mother would look at me and say, no, no, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. Of course, she knew from having lived through the 1960s herself 
that it was not the creative psychedelic paradise that I, listening to nothing but Beatle records, imagined that it was. I was born in the late 1960s, so I was alive in that decade, but I clearly did not know from which I spoke. That speaks to why nostalgia can be a trap. Our brains have a tendency to be selective, so our memories of home, either the literal home we grew up in, or the time and place we think we would be at home in, can be a version of reality that is highly curated and expurgated. Expurgated meaning having the objectionable or troubling parts edited out. When we are feeling nostalgic, hindsight is seldom 2020. Now, I said I wanted to talk about a song by John. If you Google, in my life, original lyrics, you'll see a draft of the lyrics to that song in John Lennon's handwriting. The first verse is familiar. There are places I'll remember all my life, though some have changed. Some forever, but not for better. Some have gone, and some remain. But then these verses follow it. Penny Lane is one I'm missing, up Church Road to the clock tower. In the circle of the abbey, I have seen some happy hours. Past the tram sheds with no trams, on the number five bus into town. Past the Dutch and St. Columbus, to the docker's umbrella that they pulled down. Spoiler alert, John Lennon revised those lyrics. Now, as the story goes, a British journalist named Kenneth Alsop suggested to John that he write a song about his childhood. You might as well do that, I guess, when you're 25 years old and your childhood is close at hand in the memory. So John wrote In My Life with the lyrics just mentioned, but he was not satisfied with the results. Rightly so. If the Beatles were to record a song with lyrics that specific, down to the number of the bus and a tram shed with no trams, well, it might mean something to John Lennon, but we, the listener, having not grown up in Liverpool, might not relate to the song or feel the full impact of its emotional power. We might also not know that a tram is what the Brits call a trolley car, and that they are kept in a tram shed. Fortunately, John solved this problem by making the lyrics more general. Instead of specific names, he refers only to places, people, and things that went before. Naturally, that generality makes the song more universal, but it also implies that for the speaker, the citation of specific names, particularly of people who have died, is too painful. When I listen to In My Life and I hear John refer to lovers and friends I still can recall, some are dead, I have to believe that he is thinking about his mother, Julia, and about his dear friend, Stuart Sutcliffe, both of whom never lived to see how John and his bandmates would change the world. John wrote In My Life in the year he turned 25. Now, to be sure, some people in their mid-twenties may be nostalgic for their childhood, 
or what there is of their past. But I think it's fair to say that most people in their mid-twenties are either living in the moment or are always looking forward to tomorrow. The home that the Beatles may have wished they could go back to is one in which they weren't world-famous and unable to go out in public wherever they chose. It's worth noting that in 1965, the same year the Beatles recorded In My Life, Paul McCartney put words to a melody that had been kicking around his head for some time. According to Paul, the melody came to him in a dream, and he played this melody for people, asking them if they recognized it. Paul was concerned, as songwriters can be, that a melody that they had thought was original was in fact already in existence. The song was Yesterday, and although that song is about a relationship that has broken up, with the speaker of the song wishing he could turn back the clock to when the relationship was strong, it's almost impossible, I'd say, to listen to this song and not hear someone being wistfully nostalgic, not just for a lover, but also for a time, for the past, for a place that he called home. That's pretty melancholy, so let's return to the song Penny Lane. Everything about that song, its lively tempo, its major key, its bright and crisp sound, its trumpets and bells, its lyrics, the scene it describes, suggests positive feeling, good and happy feeling. But if you look at the language of the song, nowhere does the speaker of the song say things like, I sure do miss Penny Lane, or, as John originally wrote in In My Life, I have seen some happy hours. Paul merely observes and recounts characters and what they're doing. He doesn't pass judgment on the people he sings about. He doesn't express regret, longing, or nostalgia. He merely says that the details of his memory are vivid. Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. I can see it. I can hear it. It's curious that Paul uses the possessive pronoun my, my ears, my eyes, but he does not use the pronouns me or I anywhere else in the song. Most of the language of Penny Lane is outwardly focused. Now contrast this with the flip side of the single Penny Lane, John's Strawberry Fields Forever, which is also a portrait of a real childhood place in Liverpool. John, in that song, uses the word me six times and the word I eight times, nine if you include I'm. I've been listening to Strawberry Fields Forever for what feels like forever, but it didn't occur to me until I scanned the lyrics for personal pronouns that John uses the word think in this song no fewer than five times. I wonder if even John realized that. So to me, this harkens back to an earlier Lennon-McCartney song, There's a Place, in which the speaker tells us that there is a place he can go when he feels low, when he feels blue. 
And it's my mind, he says. And there's no time when I'm alone. Right, now let's hear it, let's hear it with the triangle. Does he want to speak right? First one. Oh, sorry, the third bar seat. Third bar. One, two, ready? Third bar seat. One, two, three, four. as we noted in part one of this two-part episode, is a real place named after a merchant named James Penny. It's a funny coincidence that a song about memory and thoughts of childhood should also be of a place called Penny Lane, since we have the expression, Penny for your thoughts. If you've seen the movie Casablanca, you know the scene where Rick and Ilsa are in Paris, having a very romantic time, and Ilsa cheerfully says to Rick, a frank for your thoughts. This is also funny, because not only is it a play on the phrase, penny for your thoughts, but also Ilsa is asking Rick to be frank with her. Rick tells Ilsa that in America, his thoughts would fetch a penny, which he says is probably all they're worth. But the phrase penny for your thoughts, dates back to a time when a penny was a good amount of money. So to offer a penny in exchange for someone to divulge what they're thinking was not a bad offer. Care to guess how old the phrase penny for your thoughts is? A hundred years old? Two hundred years old? Three hundred? Give it some thought. While you're thinking about that, A brief word that my name is Tim Lemire. You can find episodes of The Beatles English on Apple Podcasts and on my website at timlemire.com, where you'll also find more information about me. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review. That helps other Beatle people to find it. Okay, ready to guess? The first citation, as far as I can find, of the phrase, Penny for Your Thoughts, is in 1522, almost 500 years ago, in a book by Sir Thomas More. He writes, in his brand of English, It often happeth that the very face showeth the mind walking a pilgrimage, in such wise that other folk soidenly say to them, A penny for your thought. Now, from what I read, a penny in 1522 was a good amount of money. Not like today, when you pass pennies on the street, or on the lane, and you don't bother to pick them up. I hope you've enjoyed these thoughts about the Beatles and the endless wonders of the English language. Please tune in again, and we'll talk some more. My name is Tim Lemire, and this is The Beatles English.